Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Safety Namus, author, Bitcoiner, economist, and author of the new book, The Fiat Standard. We talk about the history of central banking, the fiat standard, the payment rails, and all the injustices that go into it. Uh, we also talk about Safety's appreciation for the fiat standard since studying it. Safety in a moose. How's everything going, man? Very good. Very good. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. Always a pleasure to be chatting to you. <laughs> yeah. And you've been doing quite a lot since uh, last time we talked. You seem to have written an entire book on fiat money. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, I seem to have written an entire book on fiat money is, is an accurate way of putting it. It sort of came out of my fingers to a keyboard and it just it happened. Yeah, so I guess the idea of this book was, you know, I think one thing that I try and learn as an entrepreneur is not to mess with success. And so the Bitcoin standard was a big success. A lot of people liked it. I was astonished. I mean, I, I was writing it as an academic book. But everybody from, you know, people on Wall Street to people in hyperinflationary economies with high school diplomas read the book and enjoyed it a lot. And not everybody enjoyed it, obviously, but I think a vast majority of people did enjoy it and learned a lot from it and told me that they really liked it. So I, um, and then, you know, the, the thing that was missing from the book, I think, was an explanation of the how fiat and Bitcoin are going to interact and uh, coexist and well, how that relationship is going to happen over time. So in the few months after the Bitcoin standard, as I started contemplating what to write about next, this was the natural thing, you know. All right, so the Bitcoin standard makes the case for why Bitcoin is likely to rise and continue to rise, but doesn't really explain what that's going to mean for fiat and what fiat is going to be doing. Basically, the Bitcoin standard tells you the Cinderella story of Bitcoin. The Bitcoin is the Cinderella, but you know we also have the Cinderella's stepmother and her evil stepsisters, which are fiat. Now, they're not just going to sit idly by they're obviously going to do things in order to try and prevent Cinderella from marrying uh, the prince. So uh, <laughs> that was the question, you know, how will the stepmoms of the fiat system behave toward the uh, Bitcoin system? And to begin answering this question, I started writing a bunch of papers, which I may, you may remember that I wrote for subscribers in 2018 mm -hmm. and early 2019 on how Bitcoin can rise. But then I came to the realization that really the best way to attack this question would be to study fiat itself. I needed to explain and study and understand fiat. And I thought the best way to do that would be to just do it in the same way that I did it with Bitcoin. Just approach the topic from first principles. You know, with Bitcoin, nobody knew what Bitcoin was. And nobody, most people still don't know. And even people who know really don't know it very well. So there was no alternative except, you know, looking at it from scratch, from first principles, trying to figure out what this monster is. And uh, that's kind of what I did with the Bitcoin standard. You know, there was no science of Bitcoin. There was no uh, set way of approaching it. So I just came at it with fresh eyes. You know, what is this thing? How does it work? Let's try and look at it functionally and then try and explain the consequences of its operation. And so that's what I did with the Bitcoin standard. And I thought I was just going to do the same thing with fiat. When I got the idea for doing this, it made the job of writing a next book kind of easier. You know, the Bitcoin standard was more or less like 10 years in the making because I'd <laughs> been thinking about these concepts of hard money and time preference for many years. And then Bitcoin came about and I just needed to sit down and write all of these ideas that I had together. But with the fiat standard, the way that I basically, you know, built the scaffolding for making this book was to kind of mimic the Bitcoin standard. So I, um, you know, I started with the cover. I made the cover look exactly like the cover of the Bitcoin standard, except I uh, switched out the objects that denote the evolution of money. With fiat, it was the evolution of forms of slavery. So that you had a whip. <laughs> and then a ball and chain, and then the US dollar. And <laughs> then the introduction of the first chapter in the Bitcoin standard was about Satoshi's letter to the cryptography mailing list, 
I thought about, you know, what would be the equivalent to the case of fiat. And the best I could come up with was that the equivalent was the announcement by the Bank of England in 1915, telling the world that, telling English people that they should stop using gold and that they should hand over their gold to the bank and that they should instead hold on to their paper, the bank's papers. And from that day, I think it's fair to say that that was the beginning of the move. That was the white paper for the fiat standard. And since then, (laughs) it's been struggling to get implemented correctly. Well, there's certainly a lot in that first section of the book, which I found absolutely fascinating. And, you know, it's called fiat money. And you talk a little bit about how for the Bank of England, the way they sort of finance government and things like that was to export inflation to the colonies through sort of forced usage of the, you know, Bank of England's currency. Can you explain that a little bit? And, you know, give my listeners sort of like uh, an insight into how that inflation actually worked and how it enriched England as a result? Yeah. So the Bank of England had an enormous advantage at that time because they had uh, the most advanced methods of communication and they had the most sophisticated network of uh, banks around the world. So all their banks you know, all the colonies had banks that were connected to the Bank of England. And so if you were in one colony and you wanted to uh, send money to another colony or to England or to Europe, your best bet was the Bank of England. Like if you were in India, you wanted to buy something from France, you know, you could take the gold and ship it to France in exchange for the things that you wanted to buy in France, or you could just walk into your local branch of the Bank of England and uh, give them the money. And then they would, you know, run their lightning channel equivalents <laughs> with, uh, you know, between Delhi and London and then between London and France. And you didn't have to take your physical gold to France in order to make the payment. So the Bank mm-hmm. of England was allowing all of these colonies to get on a gold standard as long as they would use, I mean, they were, most of these places were using gold anyway. They had gold mm-hmm. as money, but they were allowing them to get on a gold standard by just using the Bank of England, which would issue local currencies that were backed by gold and redeemable for gold. But, and this is really the key thing, because all of these currencies were so spread out all over the world, and because the people who held them would not, oh, and uh, they weren't backed by gold, they were backed by Bank of England notes, so they were backed by British pounds, which were in turn backed by gold in England. So, it wasn't easy for you to go and take your your Indian uh, issued money and redeem it for gold in the Bank of England. So that mm. meant that the Bank of England had quite a bit of leeway in printing more money than mm. the gold that they had. So leading up to World War I, the bank had about 30% gold cover of its sterling pound. So they'd already been doing, uh, you know, fiat inflation in the decades leading up to the war. The war came and exposed this, and then it exacerbated it because they needed to make more inflation in order to finance the war. And then that created the kind of uh, liquidity shortage that they have, or, you know, liquidity shortage is a fiat euphemism for insolvency and bankruptcy. (laughs) But like they could run this system where they could make more money than they had in terms of gold because it was hard for people in the colonies to redeem. And so people in the colonies were essentially subsidizing England. They were allowing people in England to, they were allowing the Bank of England to print money without gold backing because the Bank of England had access to the most important payment network in the world. Mm. So would it be fair to say that the people in the colonies, because they didn't really have an easy option to convert those Bank of England notes to gold, that as a result, they got screwed more because more, you know, there was more paper in the colonies versus in the motherland or something like that? Is that what happened? Is that the closer that you were to the Bank of England, the more convertibility it had and the better it traded for or something? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the ultimate thing is that your gold coin in Delhi or in Central America or in the US or wherever, it was not very saleable across space. And that's really the key Mm -hmm. concept in the first and, well, in the third part of the book as well. 
saleability across space. So in the Bitcoin standard, I focus across uh, I focus on saleability across time. Where if we think about Bitcoin, you know how Bitcoin holds on to its ability when you move it across time, when you hold on to it across time. In the fiat standard, I think the, the, the starting point is to think about saleability across space. So if you had a gold coin in Delhi and you wanted to send it to France, it was extremely expensive to send it to France because, mm. uh, you know, shipping costs of gold were very, very expensive. But on the other hand, if you were to use it with the Bank of England's clearance mechanisms, then that ounce of gold could travel much faster around the world. Mm. And so... You could think about it in the sense of when I think this is really kind of the, you know, the, the, if we want to give fiat its due, I think we need to just come to terms with the fact that Bitcoin or that gold's monetary system, you know, gold bugs would like to say that gold is hard money. But really, gold is not hard money when you start thinking about it across space, because across space, it needs the rails. It needs the settlement uh, network that allows it to move around. And that settlement network is kind of an inseparable part of the money, you know, mm. when or let's say up until up until the 17th and 18th century. The majority of trade was domestic and you could move gold around and gold was pretty good for moving around much better than silver and copper because it was uh, much more valuable. So you had to carry small pieces of gold and they would carry significant amounts of value. So it wasn't expensive to move it around. But then in the 19th century, now you have really sophisticated mechanisms for transportation. You've got trains, you've got cars, you've got really sophisticated ships traveling all over the world and you have telegrams and people are able to communicate and trade across borders so now in order to make gold move around you need those payment networks so whoever controls the payment network effectively controls the gold and effectively their credit their ability to settle a payment their ability to tell you their ability to grant you money in your account or to accept money in your account and send it to another part of the world that became as good as gold i think this mm. is really the key thing that it's uh, you know if we have a world of angels then yeah those people just move the gold around and the value of the gold stays the same and they don't mess around with the gold but we don't live in a world of angels and in that world, the people who have the ability to move the gold around are adding significantly to its value. Now, in a world of angels, what would happen is that they would, you know, that value would accrue as equity. So they charge you money for this, and then the value of the company and the bank that are able to settle this would rise. But that would mean, you know, higher transaction costs. The deviant kind of way in which the Bank of England dealt with this was to make it so that the cost was hidden in that you got cheap transaction fees, but they would inflate the money supply. Mm. That's the tricky part. Yeah, and you call this the government-sponsored financial alchemy, which I thought was such a brilliant way to put it because... Uh, you know, as you say in the book, uh, you know, alchemy for many years was tried by people to turn lead into gold or whatever. But, you know, these banks actually figured it out. You can create new currency essentially by issuing credit. Can you describe this method of credit creation becoming sort of like as good as gold, essentially? What happened there? Why did that transition take place? I think, you know, in, in the first couple of chapters, it's not a history book, but in the first couple of chapters, I look at the history of how this mess started. And I think, you know, the World War I was a very, very significant uh, milestone in the development of this. So the Bank of England was already doing this for decades before World War I. And the short answer of why they did it is because they could. You know, they didn't have to back all of their gold liabilities, all of their papers that were backed by gold, that were redeemable by gold, they didn't have to buy up gold and back them all up because they weren't getting that many people asking for redemption because most people needed the money on the Bank of England platform, if you want. you know. So think about it. Imagine if, I guess if we wanted to do it as an analogy, imagine if moving Bitcoin around 
across international borders costs, say, $100,000 per transaction. And then you had a Bitcoin exchange that offered you the ability to move it around because they had physical branches in different countries. And then you could just walk to the branch in Austin, Texas, and send and, and give them your Bitcoins. And they would then send them to somebody in, they would send, they would tell somebody in their branch in London to hand over these coins to somebody else who goes and picks them up. And they allow you to do the transaction instead of having to pay $10,000 for it. You can get it done with like $100. Well, in that situation, you're going to end up leaving a lot of your coins on that exchange, on that mm -hmm. Bitcoin bank. So that mm -hmm. bank is then going to start issue, issuing more liabilities than Bitcoin, and they'll be able to get away with it. And this is, I think... Like this is kind of the appreciation of fiat that I arrived at with this book, trying to approach it with an open mind. You know, not that I agree that this is a good thing. And I don't think that's a good thing that they do it, but I can understand, you know, as Chris Rock mm. used to say, it's, uh, I'm not saying he should have done it, <laughs> but I understand. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you've got the ability to move gold around. And people need that. And so people will pay you money. And now you just don't have to have as much gold. You can issue more credit than you have. And then that will work out fine. And it did work out fine for decades. You know, they just kept on. But of course, the, this is kind of self-defeating and self-destructive because uh, the more it works out, the more unbacked liabilities you issue, the more flimsy it becomes, the more fragile the system becomes. And the more liable it is to fall apart when a massive shock comes in. And that's what World War I did. And World War I was just a completely unexpected thing. I mean, when it happened, banks, uh, the, the British press famously called it the August Bank Holiday War. You know, we're just going to go <laughs> bank holiday for a couple of weeks, go win the war, kick the Germans' ass and come back. And life will go back to normal. Everybody in Europe had that idea. And I think it wasn't just the Bank of England that was doing this at that time. I think all central banks were to an extent engaging in this because they were all benefiting from this ability to settle trade for their citizens, which allowed them to issue more money than their citizens had, than the mm. gold that had uh, been entrusted to them. Mm. Well, and you point out that after World War One, England had this really crazy sort of like set of things that they were trying to maintain. They they were spending a lot of money. They they had unions that you know needed a high wage. They had the gold peg. They they were also the global reserve currency. And the way they solved it was really interesting to me. Your explanation, I think, kind of made a lot more sense after reading it and thinking about it. But you basically say in the book that the expansionary monetary policy of the 20s in the United States was something that England convinced the United States to do as a way to maintain sort of like a balance of trade and, you know, getting to scam a little longer on all of those things, which shouldn't have been possible given, you know, they had just gone through a long war. Absolutely. It's, it's an astonishing story and it's an extremely important story and it's a massively understudied and underappreciated story for understandable reasons. You know, governments don't like to <laughs> tell the truth, especially when the truth is this ugly. But it's something that you can get from reading Murray Rothbard's History of America's Great Depression. And I think mm. you can't really understand the Great Depression unless you understand this. Now, in the mainstream <laughs> vision and understanding of the Great Depression is so unbelievably idiotic it's 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 mm. astonishing so according to the keynesians the reason that the great depression happened was that the us and the world was on a gold standard and that meant that <laughs> you know governments couldn't print money and without government ability to print money we were all doomed for recessions and then you know the crash happened and the government couldn't drive us out of the crash and there's of course no discussion of what it is that caused the crash in the first place <laughs> and now in the in the monetarist perspective it's very similar it's that there was a banking crash and what was needed was for the central bank to print a whole bunch of money to make the banking system uh, recover after that crash. And then because that, that didn't happen because of the gold standard. And so this is basically how Milton Friedman became famous because he concluded that the 
cause of the Great Depression was the gold standard and that the solution was for the central bank to print a whole bunch of money. Now, interestingly enough, and I, this is one of those facts I never tire of repeating, the uh, what is considered the most important book for on U.S. monetary history is uh, Friedman's Friedman and Schwartz's uh, Monetary History of the United States, and that book's particularly important because of its treatment of the Great Depression and because it arrives at this conclusion. But it begins its discussion of the Great Depression. It's chapter eight. The chapter begins from the day of the stock market crash. It says on October 23rd or 24th, I think, the stocks fell by this much. And then it just proceeds to tell the story of all the events and statistics that happened. And this is this is kind of how um, a lot of economics works in that it's just, it inundates you with facts and trivia and there's very little logic and analysis. So mm. it starts from that. And the chapter before it ends in 1921. So the, the most important analysis of the Great Depression skips over the period from 1921 to 1929, which is when the Great Depression started, which you'd think might be relevant, you know? But it's understandable why, because, you know, Milton Friedman wouldn't have become the monetary authority if he'd actually tried to dig into this and come up with an honest explanation for why the crash had happened. But mm. the reason the crash was hap well, had happened was because Britain essentially exported its inflation to the U.S. and the rest of the world. Mm. And the way that worked was, so the U.S. was the last to go off the gold standard. The U.S. went off the gold standard in 1917. So as a result, from 1914 to 1917, gold went from Britain to the U.S. So mm. Britain had stopped redeeming gold. And so if you had gold in Britain, you could get a better rate on it. You could redeem it in the US and you didn't want to keep it in Britain because it would get confiscated. So gold mm. started leaving Britain and going to the US. And of course, and I mentioned this in detail in chapter one, the Bank of England collected the vast majority of gold from the hands of British people and sent it to the US, to American banks, for those American banks to finance the US war effort. Mm. So sorry to finance the British war effort. So that you know that, that created a big problem for the Bank of England because they were running short on gold, and they had uh, printed a lot of money, but they had suspended redemption of gold, and the U.S. was still redeeming gold. So gold went to the U.S. until 1917. 1917, the U.S. goes off the gold standard. Yeah. But then the U.S. returns to the gold standard in 1921 or 22. I'm uh, the exact date is in the book. The U.S. goes back on the gold standard in 1922. Why? Because the U.S. had, you know, the U.S. printed a bunch of money and there was an inflationary expansion throughout the war. And then they had a president at that time, Calvin Coolidge, who was basically enjoying life in the White House, throwing parties all the time, which is the best thing that you could expect from a president. So <laughs> he didn't do anything to try and help the economy recover, and he didn't try and micromanage everything. So there was a, a recession in 1921. And contrary to Milton Friedman propaganda, that recession was ended very, very quickly in about six months. Even though it was a sharp recession, it ended very quickly without any government intervention, without the central bank having to print a whole bunch of money, without the government having to spend a lot of money. There was a crash, there was a sharp uh, downturn, and then there was a very quick recovery. And with that recovery, they went back on the gold standard. So the U.S., mm -hmm. by 1922, you know, the U.S. had benefited from World War I effectively because it had a lot of gold moved there. It had a lot of migrants move there. And... It went back on a gold standard. It could afford to go on a gold standard because it was a far freer economy than England at that time. On the other hand, mm -hmm. England had gone off the gold standard and they had a massive problem, which is prices of everything that were going up in the British pound and wages were unable to keep up with inflation. And, and you know, the same standard problem that was to be repeated, you see it happening all over the world today, which is people are not happy about their wages. So they want the government to print money to give them higher wages. So the government prints money, gives them higher wages, but then that leads to more prices rising. And of mm. course, the answer is to just, uh, you know, the answer for Britain at that point would have been, look, we messed up. We printed a lot of money because we wanted to defeat the Germans. I know you guys don't think that it was worthwhile for us to enter into this war. Into this war, and of course, 
You know, when the when the British government offered a bunch of bonds for sale, this is something that was only revealed a few years ago. This is an amazingly important historical detail, which only became apparent in 2017, and nobody talks about it. They offered 400 million pounds of bonds for sale in uh, 1915, and the British people basically bought a third of them. But then the Bank of England bought the other two thirds. And they bought it in the name of two Bank of England employees. And then the press reported it, you know, the, the Fiat Shill Press, the Financial Times, the Fiat Bro Times, as I like to call them, they reported this as if it was a massive successful bond sale that the British public had bought it. So British people thought that they, oh, wow, you know, we financed this, we wanted to take the war. But in reality, British people didn't want to go into the war. They didn't want to invest in these stupid bonds. And of course, Keynes was very happy about this because, you know, He's he's an immoral <laughs> scoundrel. But so they printed all that money, and then they had the problem with all of these with all of the returning workers and with with high prices. The money supply had more than doubled throughout the war. So they had higher prices and they had wages and, and they had labor unions demanding higher wages. What they should have done, what the only way out of this would have been revalue the pound and then wages go up, prices go up, and then you know people's savings are devalued. People have to take a haircut, but then everything goes back to normal. But they couldn't accept that. There was it was too much too much pride in the idea that they needed to maintain the British pound at its historical rate. They couldn't accept the idea that they devalued the British pound. Devaluation was something that other nations did, but not the pound. And so they wanted to maintain the pound at its previous peg, but there was an increase in the money supply, and so they couldn't resume redemption. They could not resume redemption. And so that led to more and more gold leaving Britain and going to France and the U.S., particularly the U.S., because uh, gold was effectively undervalued in England. So if you wanted to sell your gold for pounds in England, you'd get fewer pounds than if you would take your gold to the U.S., sell it for dollars, and then bring the dollars to England and, and or sell the dollars in the U.S. for pounds and bring the pounds to England. So all of that gold was flowing out because the pound was undervalued. Sorry, the pound was overvalued. The law had made the pound overvalued. So like, how do you fix that? Well, you revalue the pound in order to reflect the amount of inflation that has taken place. That's the same thing to do. And then prices adjust and labor unions adjust and everything adjusts and life goes back to normal, which is what the Americans did. Mm. But that's not the English way. <laughs> <laughs> the English way is, of course, to do the most destructive thing for the rest of the world. So what they did instead was they convinced the Americans that the Americans needed to inflate their own money supply and to overvalue the dollar next to gold so that the British gold trade would stop so, mm -hmm. so that people would stop taking their gold to the US. And so that's what led to a whole bunch of inflation in the US. And that was the driver of the boom of the 1920s, which in turn led to the crash of 1929. And that's the part of the history that is ignored. But it's really an important episode. And it's, it's written in more detail in Murray Rothbard's excellent book, America's Great Depression. Hmm. Well, so the way you just described this is is they use this sort of payment network that they had and this sort of you know power that they had over it as a way to get out of this weird conundrum that they put themselves in where they had to keep high wages, maintain their spending, the gold peg, uh, global reserve currency, and their solution ended up causing a boom in the U.S. that you know, ended up in a bust cycle starting in 1929. That That's basically what you described. But at the heart of this is this thing where credit becomes money. And for me, this was a big aha moment. And like the way you described it for me was like, it enlightened so many things because I think there is sort of like this conflation between these two things. And a lot of people don't realize that they're traded the same way in the economy right now. But really, historically, they're different things. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, I think this is the this is the kind of key conflation. And incidentally, you'll see that mainstream economists from all varieties 
you know, from the Marxists to the Friedmanites, passing by the Keynesians, they all make this extremely idiotic error and they promote it heavily, which is the idea that money is debt and debt is money. And the two things are the same and money has always been debt. And uh, David Graeber's horrific book is kind of a leading uh, leading light in this idea that money has always been debt and we've never had debt other than money and we've never had money other than debt, which I think is nonsense because they're clearly different things. Money is something that you use for settling trade, that is final settlement for trade. So if you make a payment with money, if I pay you for something with a form of money, you take that money and then that money works as money regardless of what I do. You know, Once you have it in your pocket, once you have a gold coin in your pocket, that gold coin is money and that's it. And then you can use it any way you want and you have no further expectation for me to do anything at all in order for it to continue to work. And now that cannot, under any circumstances, be considered equivalent to a piece of paper from me telling you that I'm going to give you something in the future. Well, that something could be a gold coin or that something could be, you know, apples or oranges or wheat or uh, meat or whatever. A promise from me to deliver you a gold coin in a year is not the same thing as a gold coin in your pocket today. That's why if I told you, can I, you know, let's say you're going to sell me something for uh, $100 today. You, if I told you, yeah, I'll give you $100 cash, that's one thing. But if I told you, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a piece of paper where it's a promise that I'm going to pay you next year, $100, you're not going to accept $100 next year, right? You're going to have it, you're going to discount that promise. And so you're going to want a higher amount, right? You're going to definitely want a higher amount next year in order to accept selling the thing that you would have sold for $100. So you'll take my promise to pay you next year. $110, maybe. Why? Because it's, you know, in the future, and it's future is not certain. Yes, and the uncertainty. And also, Mm -hmm. because that means that throughout this year, that form of money that I gave you, this piece of paper that I gave you, you know, a promise from SAFE that I'm going to pay Jimmy $110 in a year, is nowhere near as liquid, nowhere near as saleable as a $100 bill. So you Mm. take the $100 bill anywhere in the world and you give it to anybody and they'll give you stuff in exchange for it. You have Mm. a piece of paper that says SAFE is going to pay me $110 next year. Good luck trying to buy (laughs) stuff with that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That's the key difference. And that's something that Marxist idiots don't understand because they're idiots and because they're basically government propaganda and they're all uh, fostered at government-funded universities and central bank-funded universities. And so they promote this moronic idea that money and debt are the same thing. And Mm so, you know, we can run an economy on gold coins or we can run an economy on pieces of paper telling each other, I'm going to pay you a gold coin in the future at a certain time and maturity. And there's no difference there. But there is an enormous difference. And the enormous difference really can be understood in terms of the saleability. The saleability across space, across time, you are far more likely to be able to sell your coin, to sell your gold coin or your $100 bill than you are to sell a promise from me to mm. pay you those things. So this is, you know, th- this, is, uh, this is the distinction that is missed by the majority of economists. And it's the distinction that allows governments to pass off their credit as if it is money. Mm. And of course, the problem here is that, you know, so the one problem is, in terms of you know your ability to sell the coin to others or sell the piece of paper to others, there's a huge difference. But also, going back to the Bitcoin standard and the saleability across time, there's a massive difference between the two because it's very hard for me to make more $100 bills or gold coins. It's very easy for me to issue promises for $100 bills and gold coins. So mm. gold coins are much harder than promises for gold coins. And $100 mm. bills are much harder as money you know, by using uh, Bitcoin standard terms. So it's much easier for me to make promises for $100 bills in the future. Mm. Because, you know, I'll make a promise for you, I'll make a promise for somebody else, and I'll make another promise for somebody else in another country, and uh, you guys don't even know each other. And then next mm-hmm. year, you know, 
if I don't have uh, enough to make those payments, well, guess what? <laughs> you don't have enough to get paid. So hmm. there's a huge difference between the two. And yet what the fiat system effectively does is that it treats government promises for payment. It treats or governments, it treats promises by any entity that is backed by the government as if it is as good as money. And so hmm. once you get on the fiat payment network, once you've suspended gold redeemability, once you can no longer redeem gold for, uh, you redeem your papers for money and redeem credit for gold, well, once we've achieved that, we've taken away the hardness of money. There's now no more limit on how much money can be. Well, there is a limit, but it's much less of a limit than the hardness of gold. Gold mm -hmm. supply increases at around 1% or 2% per year, but with credit, the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. You can get 7%, you can get 20%, you can get 30% per year. You can just issue more and more credit. And the more credit you issue, the more the thing looks like it is workable to the point now where you have insane people like the MMT clowns who think that there's no limit on how much uh, credit the US government can issue. It just can continue to issue credit infinitely, indefinitely, forever, and it's never going to go bankrupt. So the more credit you issue, the easier the money becomes, the more confident the idiots become that this thing <laughs> is going to survive, and then you end up with a situation where the majority of people think like fucking Marxist idiots and <laughs> they think that let's just keep making more and more money and printing more and more credit and, you know, yeah, government is the Make-A-Wish Foundation and whatever you want can be satisfied by making more credit. Yeah. So just to sum up what you're saying, basically, the system of being able to transfer uh, value over space very quickly requires some credit mechanism. And that's really what you know the Bank of England pioneered with its uh, monetary network and the ability to you know, pay somebody from India to London very, very quickly. That was the result of, you know, that that's a network that they created, but it relied on credit. But by having that network, um, it's kind of like the Lightning Network, except, you know, it's, it's based on promises and not actually locking up stuff. What, what ended up happening is that they were able to expand the amount of gold at any time by just issuing new credit. And that is, of course, much harder than digging up gold out of the ground. That's essentially what you're saying. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So based on that, I found it intriguing that you saw, you know, post Bretton Woods and things like that, every other fiat currency as sort of like a second layer token. Can you describe that a little bit as far as, you know, uh, the entire fiat monetary system, US being sort of the base layer and other fiat currencies being a second layer? Yeah, I think when you when you start thinking about it, when you get rid of the propaganda and the kind of the kind of the you know the equivalent of the altcoin promotional material and the glossy brochures and the uh, web pages and all the unkept promises there's really the entire monetary system is the dollar it's a dollar based system it's built on the, it used to be the pound when it was in the bank of england and then it became the dollar after world war 2 and every national currency is just a side chain of the us dollar and it's mm. basically the value of any national currency is the US dollar backing it plus the country risk and mm. plus a discount for the inflationary monetary policy that they do. So basically, if you look in the long term, no national currency has appreciated significantly against the US dollar. They are either pegged to the US dollar or they decline next to the US dollar. That's always the case. So mm. this is why I think it's it's better understood as a as side chains. You know that there's one mm. central bank, which is the US central bank, and that's mm. the only central bank that is able. That's the only node that gets to validate all transactions. They could mm. annul any transaction. They could confiscate any balance. They could call fraud on any transaction for anybody anywhere. And you know your central bank, your local country's central bank, if you live outside the US can be shut down and can be kicked off the network, which is like what is happening with Iran or North Korea. You cannot mm. trade on the network. You cannot get on the network. And that just destroys the value of your currency and destroys your ability to trade and makes life very miserable for people in your country. So it's, yeah, I think it's it's more accurate to think about it as just one currency. Mm. And everybody else is sort of like, 
adding credit on top of that, perhaps. But really, there the base layer is the U.S. dollar. Absolutely. And then the thing is, of course, everybody's adding credit on top of it. And then all of that credit can only be extinguished, can only be settled with U.S. dollars. And so they make more credit and then they get into financial crises, of course, because that's always the case. And then the only Hmm. thing that can bail them out from these financial crises is U.S. dollars. And so that just leaves them. And then there's a whole chapter on this in the second part of the book on the misery industry. That just (laughs) leaves them basically vulnerable to takeover by the US and its financial terrorism arms, the <laughs> World Bank and the IMF. <laughs> who, you know, They have the ability to print infinite dollars. They have a credit line connected to the Federal Reserve. So Brazil's government goes and does something stupid with inflation and the value of their currency increases, I mean decreases. And then there's a uh, crash and now they're short dollars and they need a bailout. And now the World Bank and the IMF can basically do whatever they want because they're the only ones that can give them those dollars because you know everybody else needs to actually work for their dollars so if argentina wants to bail out brazil lol it's never going to happen of course they'd have to take <laughs> money away from the argentinian people to give it to the brazilian people but if the imf wants to do it they don't have to take money away from the imf workers or from the imf or you know from the imf staff or from any other country you know they can't they don't have to go and call in debts uh, f- from Argentina, tell them, hey, you know, we need you to pay us back quickly on the $10 billion because we need to give them to Brazil. They just click print and they've got their <laughs> $30 billion and they go and they give them to Brazil. Mm. Well, so it is really interesting, this uh, idea of monetary imperialism, this idea that you can essentially control a lot of these countries by, you know, playing with the monetary network that you're in control of and you know taking people off of that monetary network or issuing credit on that monetary network or threatening sort of being taken off of there or confiscating something from there is enough to get these countries to comply essentially pretty much yeah <laughs> Well, so the next concept I wanted to talk to you about was uh, this intermingling of central bank roles. And from the book, uh, what you describe as there's four different roles of a central bank that's backing the local currency, there's settling international trade, there's backing bank deposits and buying government bonds. And this intermingling, as you describe it, is the reason why so much of the stuff that's happening ends up happening. Could you describe that a little bit? Yeah, this was really something that I'd had. It was a key concept for writing the book, behind writing the book. It's something that I'd had in mind many years before uh, from teaching economics, teaching development economics in particular. It's Mm. just, it's an unbelievably bad engineering decision. It's almost like Mm. you mix up your, you you know, you mix up your uh, fresh water supply to the house with your Mm. sewage. And you have them pass through the same pipes and then you filter the water before you drink it. And it's just an extremely idiotic engineering decision. Like, why would you do that? Just let the dirty water get out of the house and keep the clean water clean. It's insane to mix them up. But what the fiat standard does, and that's really why it's so popular with governments, why governments really want it, is that it allows all of the monetary resources of the country to be mingled together basically in order to make this in order to benefit the government because it allows you know all of your international trade has to go through your central bank so you can't just like look at a place like lebanon right now or uh, venezuela or zimbabwe people there can't just opt out of their local criminal central bank they can't just say you know what screw this I'm just going to use dollars or euros or some other currency. And I'm going, you know, let's say I run a factory in one of these countries and I import things and I export things. And I'm just going to pay my suppliers in euros and I'm just going to get paid in uh, euros. And I don't want to deal with my local currency. You cannot do that. You have to deal with your local shitcoin because your central bank mm. needs you to deal with your local shitcoin because they need you because. They're going to borrow against your business. That's the key thing. You put your reserves in your bank and your bank will put those reserves in the central bank. And then the central bank issues credit backed by all of that reserves to finance the criminals in your government as they go and engage in their criminal activities. So 
the central bank issues debt for the government backed mm-hmm. by the fact that it has all of the country's money. And so therefore, basically, it's always going to remain liquid. As long as there are productive people in the country who are using the banking sector, the central bank isn't bankrupt. It can always bring up money to finance the government. And so everybody has to trade there. Everybody has to use their savings and put their savings in the central bank. And everybody has to use the same currency that is backed by all of these bank reserves. And so, and that these same bank reserves lend for the government. So it's really optimized for robbing the citizens to the benefit of the uh, central bank and the government, and to a lesser extent, the banks as well, of course. So, you know, this is truly precisely what Bitcoin fixes. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like you see it now. I know people in Lebanon who have switched to a Bitcoin standard. And because Bitcoin, you know, you can't do that with gold because you can't have a bank based on gold where you can send your money abroad, but you can do it with Bitcoin. And so mm. now the entire parasite class is unable to suck on their blood because their money is on Bitcoin. They export and import things by paying with them for Bitcoin. They get paid in Bitcoin. And all of this stuff doesn't affect them. All of this parasitic operation does not affect them. But that's what ultimately is the driver of all of the financial crises that you see throughout the 20th century. The reason that we have all of these crises is because the central bank has the monopoly on all of those functions and it uses cash account. It uses the money that it has, the big pot of money that is everybody's money in the country. It uses that. It exploits that in order to finance the government and finance the banking system and finance all of these horrific things taking place. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's not the only thing, right? Like one of the things that, that really stood out to me when you wrote about the role of the central bank is essentially like trade is held hostage by the central bank, like especially international trade, because of course, whatever they do, you know, if they spend more money than the, you know, the currency fluctuates against the dollar or some, some other currency. And this in turn causes all sorts of disruptions within their economy. And everything is essentially held hostage by this, you know, gatekeeper of the central bank. Exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, I know people in Lebanon, successful businesses that have been successful for decades, you know, successful business that has been operating for decades, works really well. They have a successful business model and they went out of business last year because Mm. their currency has been destroyed and they can't operate. They can't trade. They can't send money. And... (laughs) It's amazing. It's it's really terrorism. Like you're taking the business ransom. You're taking people's livelihoods ransom. It's like a family business that's been going on for decades. And large families have been eating from that business for decades. You know, several brothers, who, uh, a, a grandfather has set it up and now several brothers have it. And now it's all gone up in smoke because it can't operate anymore. Why? Because mm. the central bank had used it as essentially collateral to finance the criminal political class. Mm. It's almost like any savings of any kind that you have is now subject to central bank confiscation. Exactly. That's what it is. Mm. And, you know, just to bring it back a little bit, based on what you're talking about in this chapter, there is sort of like a trade-off between having a good payment network versus having a good savings technology. And as you point out, gold is really good, has good saleability across time. But in order to add the saleability of, uh, across space, what central banks essentially did was you traded off one for the other. You took this ability to save this hard money that you know didn't inflate very much. It was only 1% or 2% a year. And you, you put it on this credit-based payment no- network. And now all of this money is much easier to create because, as you point out, promises are a lot easier to make than digging gold out of the ground. So- that essentially, that trade-off is what we're, we've been paying for as a result of fiat money. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, so in that sense, you call sort of like debt gold prospecting. Can you talk about the issuance of debt in a fiat economy and what that does? Yeah. So once you start thinking about it this way, I think this was kind of the the breakthrough realization of the book was when you start thinking, yeah, the equivalent of mining in the fiat system is lending. 
for gold, you know, we can make gold. You have to engage in digging up things and it's an extremely expensive and toxic and uncertain process. It's highly likely that when you dig up things, it won't work and you could lose money. And with Bitcoin, you know, we know how Bitcoin mining works. Well, with fiat, the way that mining works is you issue debt. If you can make credit, now not anybody, you know, if I lend you $100, that's not mining fiat. That's just, that's the money supply, the fiat supply has not changed. You've taken $100 from me. I have $100 less, you have $100 more. But if I'm a bank that is backed by the Federal Reserve, I don't need to take $100 in order to lend you the $100. I make $100 from thin air and I hand them out to you. Lending is like mining. So as long as you satisfy the conditions for lending, you know, you've got the correct criteria that allow you to get a loan, then you can come to my bank and my bank will make new money. When you think about it this way, the world begins to make a lot more sense. I think that this is really the very powerful tool with which to understand why the fiat world works in the way that it does and why everything is so dysfunctional in this world. It's because, and that's really why the subtitle of the book is The Debt Slavery Alternative to Human Civilization. It's uh, when we make debt into money, we make the mining of debt become the uh, equivalent of money creation. So everybody gets in on this insane process of wanting to get into debt. And that's why everybody is in debt. And that's why it makes a lot of sense to be in debt. And that's why if you're not in debt, you're getting poorer. You know, you, mm-hmm. there's no way around it. The richest people in the world are the ones that have the biggest debt. They're the ones who borrow the most. The governments of the world, the most powerful governments of the world, are the ones that are the biggest borrowers in the world. There's no bigger borrower in the world than the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And this is the way that it works in the fiat system. In a sense, if fiat was a game, it's it's like a soccer game where you need to run up a negative scoreline. You know, you need to concede as many goals as possible in order to win. And it's an insane thing because getting into debt is highly risky. So in a sane um, monetary system like Bitcoin or gold, the more points you accumulate, you know, the higher you run up the score, the more goals you score, the more Satoshis you stack, the more gold coins you accumulate, the more secure you are financially. But with a fiat system, the more goals you concede, you know, the more debt you undertake, the less secure you are, the more uncertain things are. And that's why people can go overnight from being extremely rich to being destitute because if they miss a couple of payments, if their business stops working for some reason or the other. And this is like an incentivization of debt that's in the current system that really is kind of very odd in the sense that, you know, as you said, like issuing credit or making promises is very easy. Digging up gold out of the ground is very hard. And Wealth is basically being able to issue lots of promises. It's getting into as much debt as you can, which is very like backwards. It like that shouldn't be the case. And as you just pointed out, there's a significant amount of risk involved in uh, you know issuing all of those promises because, of course, if you don't fulfill those promises, you no longer can issue additional promises. It's a very strange system that fiat money has created. Very true. Very true. Hmm. Well, so one final thing I wanted to talk about before I let you go is this idea of, you know, deflation. And, you know, I tweeted about this a while back, but basically you argue that, you know, products getting better, right? And that causing deflation, that causing the purchasing power of the money to get better is a very different thing than credit collapse from a previous bubble. Yet, you know, it seems that Keynesians fear this credit collapse and, you know, categorize all deflation as just this uh, giant credit collapse that leads to, you know, 1929 style bust or something like that. Can you explain what the difference is and why Keynesians conflate the two and how you can tell the difference? Yeah, I think it's a very, very uh, devious trick that they pull there by equating the same thing. You know, the productivity growth is deflation. Economic growth is deflation. You know, we, in fact, you can only understand money 
as I mentioned in the Bitcoin standard, money is the hardest thing, the thing with the highest stock to flow ratio. So we end up choosing the thing with the highest stock to flow ratio because it is the thing that is that whose supply increases the least and then everything else increases more. So everything else becomes more abundant. So, you know, gold becomes money and then everything else we make more of it. So gold supply grows at one or two percent per year. But apples, oranges, houses, cars, computers, everything else, their supply grows at 2, 5, 10, 20, maybe 50% per year. So these things continue to get cheaper every year. And that's good. <laughs> that's economic growth. That's, that's why we wake up in the morning and work because, you know, we want to get more for our we want to get more bang for a buck. And that's what production does. Like there's no way that economic production does not lead to lowering of real prices. Even with all of the inflation that happens in real terms, things get cheaper. Even with all of the inflation taking place, if you look at, let's say, the, the, the cost of, like you look at any particular commodity and you look at the cost of that commodity in terms of human time over the long run uh, in the last, say, 40 years. And there's, a, I think, Professor Gene Pooley has done something called the Simon Index based on the work of Julian Simon. And it shows how these things happen over time, that the price of basically everything has gone up has gone down in terms of an hour of work, everything is now at least 80% cheaper than what it was in 1980. So we're making more, you know, there are more of everything now than there was in 1980. Cars are cheaper, homes are cheaper, computers are cheaper, coffee is cheaper, iron, everything is cheaper now than it was in 1980. And that's normal and natural and healthy. And in a sane economy, the money supply would stay constant and the money and, and these things would get, keep getting cheaper. But in an insane economy where the money supply continues to expand, these things don't get cheaper in nominal terms because the value of money continues to decline. And uh, the faster the money printer goes, the more the supply declines. Mm -hmm. Now, the other kind of deflation is what happens, which is also, of course, another symptom of the insane inflationary economy. An insane inflationary economy will create credit bubbles. And then, well, credit inflationary, not uh, regular inflation. If you just printed money out, you won't get credit bubbles. But if you issue inflationary credit that is not backed by savings, then you're going to create business cycles. And these business cycles will cause rises in valuations of assets and then a collapse in the prices of assets and a collapse in prices. And that's the deflation. And of course, it's a painful thing because a lot of businesses are getting wiped out. And it's a painful thing, and that's why you should not engage in inflation in the first place. Mm. But, of course, the Keynesians don't like to think about consequences of things, and they don't like to think about things in terms of cause and effect. It's just arrive at the politically convenient conclusion. And so, no, you know, we want to avoid this short-term pain. And, of course, how do we avoid that short-term pain? By printing more money. <laughs> And that seems to have been their, you know, playbook for a very long time. So just as a practical matter, how do you expect this current round of, I guess, uh, monetary expansion that's happened over the last 18 months, how do you expect that to end? How long can they keep that going? You know, it's really crazy. I don't know, man. It's, it's very hard to be able to tell. I think the way that things are going, you know, when I started writing the book, the conclusion that I wanted to arrive at was that Bitcoin fixes this in an extremely beautiful way and hopefully an unpainful way in that Bitcoin allows us to monetize something that is not debt. And so we don't need to completely destroy the credit system and we can upgrade. We don't just have to have the credit system collapse, which is going to be devastating. We don't have to all be like uh, Zimbabwe and Venezuela. Because we stop monetizing debt and the debt economy stops growing in real terms or growing much in real terms and the Bitcoin economy grows and the hard asset economy grows. And so we just continue to monetize Bitcoin and Bitcoin grows and the debt economy will wither away because not only does Bitcoin take away the demand for holding dollars, it takes away the demand for creating dollars because people don't want to hold on to debt People would mm -hmm. rather stack stats than uh, stack bonds. And so you start getting less and less debt being created and debt becomes less and less important as a part of the economic system. So with time, I thought, you know, perhaps uh, 
this could, I discussed this in more detail in the book, in the final chapter. I think, you know, maybe this is going to be the nice technological solution for this problem. And of course, remember the vast majority of the rich people of the world and the powerful people and the powerful entities and governments are all short fiat. You know, they all owe fiat. They are not long fiat. The only people that are long fiat are very poor people who have a little bit of uh, cash, physical cash, or a small amount of money in a checking account, or a small amount of money in a saving account. And those people, of course, are always getting ruined by inflation anyway. But, I mean, it's sad to say it, but they don't really matter politically. The system has been designed to exploit and destroy them for decades. But the people who do the exploitation, the people who benefit from this, you know, the banks, the rich people, the governments, all of these people are constantly in debt. And so if fiat begins to devalue, if fiat continues to devalue, they're better off. In fact, that's really the cheat code for winning in the fiat standard. You want to get into debt so that your liabilities are in dollars and you want to accumulate hard assets, which, you know, so your assets are things that are hard, that are not fiat. That's really the cheat code. So the Michael Saylor strategy, basically. So we're going to, I think, you know, we'll see this happen more and more in the world. And we'll start seeing the rich people upgrade to Bitcoin. And then they won't mind as fiat devalues because their fiat continues to, you know, their their debt is devalued. Like you look at a place like Lebanon right now, you know, all the people who are in debt, they're doing really well because they used to owe, let's say you used to owe a million dollars at home, but you owed it in Lebanese liras. Now the Lebanese lira has been devalued. So your million dollar loan is now $50,000. So you've got a 95% discount on your house, basically, if you have debt. And so this is what the rich people of the world are doing today. And so continued devaluation of fiat is a good thing for them. And the rise of Bitcoin would also be a good thing. They're just going to stack sats and watch their fiat get destroyed. So there is a way in which that can kind of be a popular solution for a lot of people and for a lot of powerful, influential people. That's why, you know, I think perhaps governments won't fight Bitcoin because that's just going to be the debt jubilee that they want. You know, they Mm. stack sats and watch their debt go to zero. It's true for the... uh, for the deadbeat who's got a car that he can't pay for. And it's true for the deadbeat US government that's got (laughs) trillions of dollars of debt that it can't pay for. It's the way out. But I think what complicates things, you know, when I started writing this book, this was the conclusion, but what has complicated things since then is the whole, well, since, you know, the whole pandemic business. And, but this is beginning to change now, I think, with the emergence of central bank digital currencies, which I used to think of as vaporware, but I think they might be a little bit more than vaporware because what seems to be the case is that with the popularity of universal basic income ideas and government redistribution and government just handing money out, it seems like we might actually move away from the fiat system as it has been described in the book, in that fiat is mined through credit. And we're just going to go to the terrible example of fiat as just basically money printing, but instead of it being physical printing, it's going to be digital printing. So it won't be money that is uh, printed by central banks physically. It's going to be printed digitally onto your wallet. So there's no credit creation. So that kind of changes the analysis because now you're just, that, that makes a scenario like hyperinflation more likely, unfortunately. Mm. Well, that would be quite tragic, as we we know hyperinflation tends to be very devastating. Like it's just devastating everywhere. But anyway, hopefully that gives our listeners a good preview of the book. So, Safety, where can people find this book? Where can they get it? You can get it on my website in uh, physical book as well as ebook and audiobook. And uh, uh, safedeen.com is my website, safedeen.com. And uh, you can also get the Bitcoin Standard there. You can find a way to buy the Bitcoin Standard. You can also get them on Amazon and other uh, platforms and other web booksellers. The audiobook will be on Audible in a couple of weeks. It's not ready yet. It needs a few more weeks to be uploaded. But it'll be there soon. But you can just uh, buy it and download it from my website if you like. And um, yeah, and then if you join my website as well, you can become a member and take part in my online courses 
and attend my weekly seminars where we discuss the material of the courses and talk about Bitcoin and all kinds of um, interesting topics pertaining to Bitcoin and fiat and the clown world we live in. And uh, <laughs> we publish these as a podcast, uh, the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. And also, uh, we usually have guests. So about once a week, we have two seminars a week. So one week, once is usually a discussion between the members. And then the second one is uh, a discussion with a guest. Well, I certainly enjoy all the content on your website. I've taken a few of those classes and uh, I, I found it enormously helpful to understand sort of the economic basis by which uh, Safetyne analyzes all of this stuff. So thank you, Safetyne, for writing the book and for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin's Fixes This. Safetyne can be found at at Safetyne on Twitter and Safetyne.com. Until next time, fiat the lambast.